Welcome to the Nonprofit Insider Podcast. On this podcast, we give a little bit more of a commentary feel to some of the things that are happening in the nonprofit space. And we're not just talking fundraising either. We talk about all the aspects of being in the nonprofit world. The people, the relationships, the news, the politics, and the money that goes with being in this world. Stick around. Hello, 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 and welcome back to another episode of the Nonprofit Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Swim Kareem, but you already knew that because that's why you're here. You're here to hear me talk. You're here to have me talk about opinions of the nonprofit space. And we've got a really good one today. I'm going to talk about race in the nonprofit world. Stay tuned. It's going to be coming up here in about 10 minutes. We've got some really good aspects in that that I think you're really going to enjoy from my own personal journey. Here in about 20 minutes, I have a nonprofit horror story from a friend of mine out of Texas. Yeah, it's a good one. It's one of those stories that really hits you. If you're in a nonprofit space and you listen to this story, if you know, you know. So stay tuned for both of those things. But first, let's get started with the news section. Back in January, I went skiing for the first time. And y'all, I have to admit something. I really, really loved it. <laughs> as, as a person who grew up in the urban environment in the Northeast, I, I never went skiing. The closest, I think, ski resort for us in Philadelphia is, is like the Poconos. But listen, as, as, a, as a person who, like I said, grew up in the city, we, we couldn't afford that. And I had I have a really good friend, her name is Sabrina, and she's been telling me, she's like, swim, you, you gotta get, you gotta come skiing with me. You gotta come skiing with me. And I said, okay, 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 cool, no problem. I had the opportunity to finally go in January, took my son, he's seven years old. He really enjoyed it, I really enjoyed it. And there were just so many aspects to skiing that I really appreciated. And I think the biggest piece, and I was thinking about this for some time, was you can't multitask while doing it. Especially if it's your first time. You you, you can't be on your phone, because you have gloves when you got gloves on, so you can't be on your phone, you can't uh, be spending too much time dicking around. You really got to be focusing because you don't want to run to a tree or a person, even if it's like a completely controlled environment. So it was, it was, it was a moment of realizing how much expansion I have to do in my own world. Because every time you do something new, you just you just grow and you become better and you become more interesting. And it's a feeling of being in the snow. Being out in, in nature, and look, you're surrounded by people. At the I was at the ski Santa Fe location, so you're around people, but there's just a there's just a really nice feeling of just going downhill. You're going at a really good pace, and you really enjoy it. And what's funny is maybe four, five, six weeks later, after skiing, I just typed in nonprofit and news, went to the news section of Google, and I saw what just to see what was coming up, and I saw a really good story out of Sacramento that was. Like, wow, this is this is perfect. And the title of the story, the reporter's name, Leanne Denyer. I hope I said that right. I got that in the show notes below, so make sure you check that out. The title is A Wonderful Feeling, semicolon, Sacramento Ophthalmologist Nonprofit Partner to Bring Blind Skiers to the Mountains. And again, the author, the reporter, Leanne Denyer, hope I said her name right, I'm going to have to reach out to her, does just a really good job. It's a local local 
report coming out of the Sacramento area about this nonprofit called Society for the Blind that leads this event every year called the Blind Skiers Day. And so far they've done four, and I think they'll be planning their fifth one for, it looks like 2024, in January 2024. But they've done it for four years in a row. And it's an event where people who, if you, you know, you're blind or you know, you're designated as a, as a blind person, you have the ability to go out into the slopes and really just learn various aspects of skiing, develop your ski skills. And it's just, it's just an amazing, amazing part of this nonprofit called, again, Society for the Blind. So I looked them up and the organization started in 1954 in the Sacramento area, and it now covers 27 counties in California, which I had to look at. I had to look it up because like 27 counties, is that a lot? Is that not a lot? That's 46% of the counties in California. Now we know the big counties, of course, are going to be LA County. You know, you're talking at Riverside, you're talking at uh, Palm Springs. You know, that's where Southern California has a lot of people, of course. But the fact that they cover 46% of the counties in the state it's truly impressive and had the ability to go look at their 10 or 990 report, looked at their tax returns. The director makes 150000 a year. They have 38 employees, according to their 2019 tax return. But it's clear that this nonprofit has embedded themselves in the community. When you're talking, anytime you have a nonprofit, honestly, that's around for 20, 30 years, that's impressive. But when you start getting to the 50 55, 60, 65 year range, and you're still doing innovative type of events like this blind ski day, it's just pretty impressive. And the 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 ophthalmologist, that's a bit of a word fill though, uh, Dr. Christian Sherdahl, uh, he's one of the driving forces behind the, the ski trip because he's a skier himself. And he talks about how he enjoys skiing. And so if he enjoys it, other people enjoy it, regardless of if you're you're blind, you have a designated disability, whatever the case may be. And they go on, the author, the reporter goes on to talk to a lady by the name of Samantha Adams, who has participated in a program for the last two years. And she grew up in Canada and she talks about how, you know, you know, if you're from Canada, hockey, skiing, mooses, Sarah, the stereotypes, right? But she talks about a really good quote at the very end where she says, and I quote, I want people to know blindness is not something to be afraid of. It's just another perspective and another way of living. And as a person who's doing this program, it's clear she's enjoying it. It's an opportunity under the guise of this nonprofit for other people to enjoy it. And I just, it was just a really good local story. And I always appreciate some of the local stories that come out of Des Moines, Iowa, Boise, Idaho, Madison, Wisconsin, Reading, Pennsylvania, you know, Jacksonville, Florida, wherever the case may be. When there's these local nonprofits that you and I, for the most part, we may not ever hear. We know the big boys. We know the Goodwills. We know the, the Feeding America. We know the American Red Cross. We know those big nonprofits. But to hear some local nonprofits that are six decades in, it's just really impressive and it reminded me of a little bit of a story I was I saw back also in January, where Mr. Beast, and if you don't know who Mr. Beast is, uh, he's a YouTuber, and he's a a mega YouTuber. I think he's, if I'm not mistaken, he's the most popular content creator on YouTube. 
He has 208 million users worldwide. And I think just last year, he brought in $54 million, if I'm not mistaken, just from YouTube, not including any of his outside adventures. So he, he's, a, he's a really big deal. And he's a young person. He's only 24. But he had a video back in February that ended up getting a lot of traction of him curing 1,000 blind people. And it ended up getting a lot of negative press because a lot of people were saying, one, he was using uh, people that are disabled and low income for likes and views, which a lot of his videos can kind of have some aspects of that. He has a really, I think his most popular video is the Squid Game video. You all may remember that uh, show that came out on Netflix back in 20, was it 2022 or 2021? It's been freaking pandemic since so long but he had a, a video mimicking pretty much everything in the squid game show and he did it for i think it was like a million dollars and a lot of people got a, he had a lot of criticism for that of course of saying oh you're taking advantage of people that are desperate or want money or you know yada 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 and in the video he's he cures 1000 blind people and there's a really interesting doctor on the the video who talks about how 50% of the people in the world who are considered blind would have the ability to have that cured with the right procedure that only takes about 10 minutes. And it's all funny because I'm reading a book right now by an author named Nick Cooney, How to Be Great at Doing Good, Why Results Are What Count and How Smart Charity Can Change the World. It's an interesting book. I think I'm going to have it as a rapid fire book review for episode 12. And in the book, he features this organization called the Seville, Seva, excuse me, S-E-V-A Foundation. And this foundation does these 10-minute procedures. They go about in communities across the world. And if you have a, a particular blindness that they're able to cure, they use the funds that they get it from grants, you know, charity donations, and they can do the surgery to allow people to see. And it's so it is just so crazy because reading this book, hearing about this, the most popular YouTuber, and then hearing about people go around with this 10-minute surgery of curing blind people. It's just crazy how it all interacts. And so, you know, just a, a big shout out to Society for the Blind. It's clear they're doing some really great work. And this is a program I think has the ability to be duplicated. I think that's one of the amazing things about innovation from the nonprofit space. It doesn't have to be out of this world. We think innovation has to be an app. Innovation has to be something technology-based. I saw something not long ago uh, on the internet that said tech, the, the tech industry hasn't produced anything that truly benefits our lives in the last 10 years. If you think about it, there's a lot of technology out there. Does it really benefit our lives? Or does it just make it a little bit harder? That's a conversation for another day. But when you have an organization like this nonprofit that says, hey, can we just have people just go skiing with us? That's the type of forward thinking that they're four years in. I wouldn't be surprised if in 10 years they're still doing it. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see other nonprofits doing similar type of initiatives for folks to be able to go skiing. For many of us, there's a moment where many of the lessons of life we have been given over time through our parents, through our daily lives, all begin to click together at about the same time. We're seeing this now more than ever with the acknowledgement of the many ways intersectionality plays into today's power and fortune are amassed or denied. 
these lessons can be learned early on, like your mom or dad telling you to be careful with your things before one day you eventually end up losing your favorite toy. We've all had that happen. That sucks, right? Or it could be a lesson that is deflating to see affirmed even when you knew the truth all along. Let me take a step back. There was a, there was a moment in my life where I was applying for a lot of jobs. I probably was applying for a job or two a week. And I was spending some good energy on it, trying to really improve my career and take myself to the next level in the nonprofit space. And I remember one time applying to a job and being told that I came in second place. I was denied this particular opportunity. And it was going to be one of these positions where I would move out of state uh, to a whole new state. And I remember thinking, dang, like... I had been beaten up. I had been applying for positions. And this is probably my third or fourth time, maybe, applying for a job and being told, no, you were like basically the runner up. You weren't really there. You didn't get close enough and thinking, God, this is crazy. But what ended up happening is as I applied for a job, I didn't get it. And a few months later, I received an email from a colleague who did get that job. And I remember that that colleague had sent me this email asking me to, to basically hop on a call because they wanted to discuss some of the intricacies of a program that I had developed over the years. That was a moment for me of understanding, oh, wow. Okay, I get it. And I had always, you know, to, to one degree or another, I had always knew that the nonprofit space had issues as it relates to race. But there's something very different about when it hits you and it hits you in a way that you can really understand all of the, the comments, all of the articles you read, all of the feelings that come into it, right? When, when someone's, it's like, it's like empathy, right? When, when someone breaks their leg and you've never broken your leg, you're like, damn, that sucks. You know it sucks. You know it's painful. You know it's not going to be a fun road to recovery. But when you break your leg, it's a whole different feeling. And so I remember being salty that I didn't get the position at that point in time. And then fast forward, getting this email and being salty I was salty then, and I thought to myself, I'm salty now. Because there's something that, that has to be acknowledged when you are denied an opportunity and the same individuals that are given those opportunity come to you for assistance or for help. At that point, you go, huh. And, you know, and when I say that the nonprofit space has a race problem, I, I know it intimately only through my own lens, right? I'm able to now look back and all of the other forms of microaggression, all the other forms of denied opportunities that at the first I was like, well, maybe it's just me, maybe it's the organization, maybe it's the system. And then you start to go, yeah, it's not, it's not just me as an individual, it's so much more and everything in the past starts to make sense. But before we get into that, can I tell you about my friends over at the Nonprofit Insider Podcast? That's right. You know I had to do my own promo. And what I want you to do right now is open your Instagram app, because I know you are on Instagram, and follow me at the Nonprofit Insider. 
we have a slew of high-level posts that are going to improve your life in the nonprofit space in a relaxed and informative fashion. We're talking facts, stats, opinion pieces, exclusive nonprofit horror stories I'm only going to share on Instagram, and some pretty cool pictures from time to time. Plus, every Friday I do a weekend survey question so you can stay connected with me in the greater Nonprofit Insider Podcast community. And best of all, we only post once a day, so you don't have to worry about seeing 800 million stories and posts and reviews from me. It's so annoying when I see those things. Again, follow me at the Nonprofit Insider on Instagram right now. All right, let's get back to the show. I know that the nonprofit space has a race problem, and I know that intimately through my own lens as an African-American, as a black individual in America, and I see there's so many other problems that exist in the nonprofit space uh, in so many areas, because I believe the nonprofit world has an LGBT issue. I believe the nonprofit space has a transphobic issue. I believe the nonprofit space has an issue as it relates to women in positions of power and influence. There's just been so many instances where I've worked with or volunteered with or been connected to organizations that have some truly amazing women uh, in some entry-level roles. But as you get further and further up to that particular organization, you see less and less women in positions of power and influence making good money. So I can only speak about being... I can only speak about this through my own particular lens compared to others. But I, I see that the, the race problem that the nonprofit industry has is layered. It's not just one-off as it relates to my experience of trying to get better jobs or trying to get uh, promotions or trying to get higher compensation. I see it in all forms. And looking back, I see it a lot in the relates to the clients we serve, the philosophy behind the clients that many of our organizations serve. I see it behind the way we attract volunteers, the way we bring on volunteers. I've mentioned this before where I've seen a lot of organizations that have, I believe, discriminatory practices as it relates to the way background checks are done. More often than not, that targets individuals that are of African-American background, that are of people of color background. I see it as it relates to the staffing, of course, like my story just demonstrated. I see this a lot of times where organizations have a really poor track record of high individuals of color. I see this as it relates to the funding that, that a lot of organizations have. And I see that a lot. Um, and I see a lot of articles that exist out there more than any other as it relates to the particular way money flows. And, and you know, I, I talk a lot about money uh, on this particular podcast, and I'm going to continue talking about money because I think the way money flows in nonprofits and just in general gives you an indication of the way power is set up, gives you an indication into the way networks are really organized. And that can be so instrumental to nonprofits on so many levels. Because I think a lot of nonprofits are set up in a way, they're designed in a way, they're built in a way that there's a lot of individuals of unique backgrounds, um, very beautiful um, paths and insights that are just not being put forward. And so the nonprofit space has a race problem. And it's clear that that race problem is something that has as a society 
we all need to really come together to fix behind. But I'll be, be the first to say that a lot of that does not fall on individuals of color. The way money flows, the way that the structure of the country has been designed and built over decades and centuries and generations, uh, that's not something that has to fall on individuals like me. And so I actually took that call. Uh, going back to my story in the beginning, I took that call and I was able to provide insights to the person that got the job that I applied for. I didn't give them all the secrets. You know, I had to keep, had to keep some for, for myself. Uh, but that, that's, a, that's an instance of so, that so many individuals have experience of, I wasn't given an opportunity and yet I'm being asked to do so much more for a system that at times gives me so little. I was on the United States Bureau of Labor Statistics website not long ago, and I was reading about a publication the government agency had produced back in August 2021, or at least they published it back in 2021. And for those that don't know, the United States Bureau of Labor Statistics is a government agency under the United States Department of Labor. So that's where they fit in when you think about the different agencies and the roles of federal government. And in this publication, it's titled, and it's a long title, it's titled, Number of Jobs, Labor Market Experience, Marital Status, and Health. They, they use the time to examine various aspects of the labor market, including one thing I found very interesting. They examined the total number of jobs that people worked for if they were, if they were born between the ages of 1957 and 1964. And they found that young baby boomers held an average of 12.4 jobs between the ages of 18 and 51 year, 54 years of age. So if they had a job, you know, after the age of 54 or under the age of 18, they didn't include it. And, and that's about one job every year. So every three years, baby boomers, that, that's people born no later than 1964. That would be... That would be a 59-year-old person today as, as one of the younger people. That the, oh, they, they change jobs every three years. And I think that number will go up by as much as 50% by the year 2050. And look, not a statistician, you know. I don't have the numbers like uh, the Department of Labor Statistics has. You know, they got some really smart people. But that's just my guess. Because when you think about the way people are switching jobs every few years, mixed with the fact that people are working longer, the, the writing's on the wall. I mean, France just raised the retirement age from 64, or excuse me, from 62 years old to 64 years old. So I think you're going to see a lot more of that. And with all the changes that are going to keep happening, when you do cross paths with another smart, impressive person in your respective field, you, you got to keep up with them. Many years back, I used to do a fair amount of work out of uh, El Paso, Texas. If you've never been, check it out. You know, El Paso's got some really good stuff. A little under, underrated city there. And it was about eight years ago, I crossed paths with a high-level person in a nonprofit space who I knew very early on. Like you, you can meet someone and you could tell you know, almost instantly that this is the type of person you want to stay connected with. And I met this person. She was very smart, very insightful, and, and really just overall impressive. And at the core, I think she had a, a really amazing 
great way of leading others. So when I started the nonprofit horror story segment, she was one of the first people that I thought of. And look, we know Texas can be a little wild down there sometimes, but the state is full of some really amazing people. There's, from my point of view, there's a collection of go-getters, trendsetters, and for my money, I think it's one of the few places in the world that can say, can really serve as a hub of global influence. I think Texas is one of those places. I think it's up there with Florida, California, you're seeing a lot of parts of Dubai. Texas is, is a place where a lot of weight is uh, thrown around when you throw that name out. So for today's nonprofit horror story segment, we have a close industry colleague of mine, Gabrielle. Gabrielle writes. When I was hired to help with strategic management for a local nonprofit, I had to learn the hard way that most donor databases or CRMs are not always updated. Here's the story. I was working on a big project to help the institution create a vision for their future. One of my tasks was contacting partners at foundations and other key external groups to invite them to events to talk about the future of the nonprofit and what it could look like as it served the local community. I was told that the institution's donor database needed, quote, some updating. <laughs> Still, it was a good enough for the fundraising department because fundraisers could fill me in on key constituents and their preferences or interests. As with anything outward facing, all the marketing list and details needed to be perfect. I agonized over every detail, making sure every key partner had everything just right and that I knew how to contact them, whether directly or through an assistant. One guest, Sam, was a key local leader who was always unresponsive to invitations and noticeably missing from the crowd. After three or four major events passed, our leadership team decided we needed to try to bypass Sam's assistant and go straight to him with our invitations. I was told to make a call to Sam, so I dialed his phone number and waited. It went to voicemail. And to my horror, I learned that we had his first name wrong in our system. Sam was actually Alex. I still managed to leave a message I'd written out beforehand, changing his name to Alex real quick and leaving my number and my name. Alex never called me back. And anytime I receive mailers from their foundation, I always feel a wave of embarrassment and hope they've forgiven or forgotten me. Ooh-wee, wow. Um, yeah, that that's... <laughs> that's one of those stories where you listen to it as a nonprofit insider, you, you your your stomach it, it it you feel it in your gut and your heart just drops because there's nothing quite like uh, uh inaccurate data base when you're in a nonprofit space because listen, we know that listen there's a lot of different industries out there, whether you're in for-profit, whether you're in government. It's important. You got to have your database on check. You got to have your names right. You got to have your, your T's crossed and your I's dotted. But there's something about being in a nonprofit world where the donor, the, the, the database that you have, period, is such an important piece of the equation. 
when you're going out asking for money, when you're going out looking for volunteers, when you're working with elected officials, all of those things, the information you have, it's just so important in this particular in this particular world. So reading that from Gabrielle, hearing that, I could feel the agony when she when she was listening to that voicemail and they said their name was Alex and not Sam. That's a moment of that's like seeing a ghost where you go, holy shit, what the fuck? So they it, shouts to you, Carrielle. You recovered very well. <laughs> Uh, because I think we've all had that moment to one degree or another in the nonprofit world where you mess up a name, you mess up a location, an address, a, a phone number. There's there's something that's going to happen, but it can feel extra extra tough when you're in the nonprofit space. It can suck more, it can hurt more, and it can just feel a little bit more embarrassing. And so to have that moment of you're Gabrielle, you're going out in the world, you're representing this organization but you're also representing yourself and to have those moments of pure i mean just dropping the ball like we got to get this system together we got to get this database together that is an insane story but it's so relatable because i know i've had that happen to me i know i've had tons of fundraisers tons of nonprofit staffers contractors insiders that have had that experience and it just it's a feeling that, ugh, wow. So thank you, Gabrielle, for sharing that story. That is this week's nonprofit horror story. Feel free to check out some of our previous episodes and listen in on some of the other episodes, uh, horror stories that we've had. <laughs>